0: Good morning, fellas. For me, it's Wednesday morning. Uh, Whenever you watch this, I I hope you're doing well. And before we get started today, I just gotta tell you how excited I am uh, to join in with you in this study of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, From what I've told, at least from last week, there's over 200 of us uh, studying God's uh, Word together so far, which is so very encouraging to me. I hope it's encouraging to you. Uh, But please, if you have friends or family or neighbors that you think would benefit from this study, uh, please encourage them to join us um, as we go through the Scriptures together. Now, this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3, so I invite you to go ahead and turn there. A little bit of context as you're turning there. Remember Todd said a few weeks ago uh, that Matthew's gospel, it's a historical account, a literary portrait of the words and the deeds of Jesus. It's a doorway between the Old Testament and the New Testament showing us that everything in the Old Testament is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ and Matthew is revealing Jesus to us as the king of everything. Now, he walked us through the first couple of chapters where we saw the the royal lineage of Jesus. Uh, Then we saw the birth narrative of this king, and it's quite different um, uh, than what we would think how a a king of the cosmos would be born. Um, After that, we saw pagan kings, Gentile kings, come to uh, the one true king and to worship him from who he is. Now, 25 years later from where we left off last in in Matthew chapter 2, we come to this scene where the kingdom of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus is pronounced and introduced through the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, Now, this baby is filled with so much gold, we're just not going to be able to cover it all. Um, But the two things, the two main things I want us to see is the the good news of the gospel. or, or, Or rather, the gospel of the kingdom. Why is the kingdom such good news? And how are we to enter it and enjoy it? So Matthew chapter three, starting at verse one, hear the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear uh, his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, would you bless our time this uh, this morning or whenever we uh, watch this lesson? Would you uh, prepare our hearts to receive the good news of the gospel? Would you open our eyes to the beauty of Jesus? Um, not that we would simply be informed, but truly transformed by your spirit to be more like your beloved son. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in the blessed name of King Jesus. Amen. All right, fellas. Uh, This chapter has so much going on, and it's pretty strange what's going on here. Uh, I came across a a scholar from England who gave a really good analogy, a picture to to set this scene for us so that we might understand what's going on. He said, imagine there's a far-off country, right? And in this far-off country, there is a poor and oppressed people, um, a desperate people, and uh, they're longing for, for hope but then all of a sudden one day out of nowhere this giant motorcade comes down the center of town and in the front of this motorcade there's there's motorcycles and there's blue lights flashing and there's lots of fanfare with them and they're helping people move off the road to the, to the sidewalk um, to, to make this this path clear. Now, the people in the town, they know exactly what's going on. They know that the king has been away for a very long time, but now the king is coming back, right? And uh, so they they, so they get to the side of the road, that the motorcycle's clear, then all of a sudden there's this, there's this big car and they know inside that car is the king. The king has come and, and, and they're rejoicing and they're celebrating because they know with, with the advent of this king, because he's come, everything is going to be made right. Uh, they're going to be prosperous again. Everything will be good and just. So the scholar says, take that, take that picture, and bring it back then to two thousand years ago in the hot, dusty desert. And back then, uh, the king had been gone for for a very long time, but now the king was returning. And it's not just any king. It's not an earthly king. It's not an imperfect king that we might be used to, but rather it is God himself. And he's arriving. And how in the world are people going to know about it? They're out in the middle of the desert. There's no road. (laughs) So he sends a herald out before him. And this herald announces that a new day has dawned. Something new is happening. God is on the move. Make yourself ready for it. It's that message, it's that vision, right, that was reverberating in the hearts of Israel for 400 years prior to this this time period of John the Baptist, ever since it was first uttered in Isaiah chapter 40. John the Baptist is announcing the good news that God has come and that he's establishing his kingdom. And it's time for all of us to make ourselves ready. Uh, friends, there's so much to be said in this in this uh, chapter. So what I want us to do is to break it up in three parts. I want us to look at um, John, who he is, his identity, John the prophet, John the Baptist. Um, so we understand who he is. Secondly, I want us to look at John's ministry. It, it breaks down into two parts. Then, thirdly, I want us to look at the baptism of Jesus. Um, Why is Jesus baptized? It's strange. And as we take all three of those parts together, uh, we're going to get a fuller picture of the gospel of the kingdom, why it's good news, and what we must do to enter it and to receive it. So first off, uh, the identity of John, John the prophet. Who is this guy? Well, on the surface, he's kind of a weirdo, right? I mean, it's very strange what we see happening with John in these first four verses. Um, First off, uh, we know that John is somehow related to Jesus, most likely a cousin. Luke tells us this in his gospel, but we haven't seen a whole lot of John or heard from him since he was a toddler, right? And it seems as if the years have not been kind to the man. I mean, here's John. he's, He's very poor. He's a loner. I mean, there's not a whole lot of people going fishing with John. He, he, he's by himself, and he does not seem like he's enjoying life that much. I mean, how could you? He's in a camel-haired onesie, out in the middle of the desert. I mean, he's hot, he's stinky, and look at his look at his choice of meal. The man's eating locusts. Can you imagine having dinner with John and John saying, oh, oh, don't worry, Barton, the crunchy part's the thorax. Hey, hey, here's some honey to wash it down. I mean, it's weird. (laughs) Who is this guy? Why is he intentionally living and acting this way? Well, this is why. John is fulfilling the role of the prophet. In the Old Testament, it was foretold that there would be a, another prophet that would come in the vein of Elijah. We see that in Second Kings chapter one and Malachi chapter four. Um, there would be another prophet who would come. So essentially, John is the last Old Testament prophet. But there would be another prophet that would be con- that would come like Elijah, who would be a forerunner to the time of when God Himself would appear. So that's who John is. He's taking up this role, this promised role of one like Elijah, who would announce the time of when God himself would appear, the day that all of Israel longed for. Now, why is he out in the wilderness doing this? That doesn't really make sense. It doesn't seem, you know, efficient. Why would he not go to the heart of town where everybody was? Well, the old, in the Old Testament, the, the desert wilderness uh, was very significant it was symbolic first off it was symbolic for a place of judgment in the old testament that's where god's people whom by the way that he had rescued from egypt that's the place where god's people rebelled against god continually it was a place of judgment but not only that we see also according to hosea in chapter 2 and ezekiel chapter 20 i've referenced those passages for you That it's the wilderness, that place of judgment, that God said that he would bring his people back to. Why? To woo them back to himself. It's the place where Yahweh would prove and, and purify and cleanse his people and make a new and better covenant with them. So so that's what John's doing. He's out in the place that was prophesied about, picking up the ministry that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, where he would announce the good news that that everything that we had hoped for and were promised is being fulfilled in this person, Jesus, make yourself ready for it. So essentially what we're to understand is that John intentionally knew that he was that Elijah figure. Now, that's important for a couple of reasons very quickly. Number one, it it lets us know, Matthew's letting us know that everything that we read about in our Genesis study, everything that we've read about elsewhere in our Bible study in the Old Testament, every Old Testament promise and prophecy that we've heard preached to us, all of this is being fulfilled right now in real time in the person of Jesus. It's a very exciting time in biblical history. Everything is coming to a head in this person, Christ. That's most important. Secondly, now, John isn't the perfect model for us. We'll see one of the reasons why later, Uh, but John does show us, men, amen, what being a true and radical disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. Uh, John is a picture of someone who has denied himself entirely. Someone who has died to himself and picked up the cross and followed the Lord which is exactly what Jesus calls all of us to do as his people. He has turned away from, from all of the promises and all of the allurements and all of the power that could be had in this world and, and worldly kingdoms. He, he's turned away from all of those things and he is wholly devoted to the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. That's what... John is doing. That's what he has done. And he provides a, a pretty good model for us what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But this is who John is. He, he is taking up the, the Elijah figure and he's taking um, that role on. Now, as he takes that role on, he comes a preaching. <laughs> I mean, that's who John is, uh, you know, at its center, at, at his core. He, he's a preacher. And there's two elements to his preaching. We're going to look at them in re- reverse order. First off, John comes announcing the new kingdom, the gospel of the the kingdom. Now in in the the text we see it's the kingdom of heaven. That's synonymous with the kingdom of God. uh, Matthew is is writing to primarily a Jewish audience and they did not throw around the name Yahweh lightly, right? So he, he used a term that would fall better on their, on their ears, the kingdom of heaven, that is the kingdom of God, that is the kingdom of Jesus. And so the first element that I want us to talk about is that John is announcing this kingdom's arrival, okay? And this is such good news. Why and what is it? Well, first off, what is this kingdom? There's been a lot of confusion uh, throughout history about what is meant by kingdom, Okay, and what we're to understand is that what, what John is talking about, what Matthew records, is, is not, really, it's not really talking about a theocracy. It's not talking about something that can be defined by, by national borders. Okay, as, as we see that word kingdom in the original language in Greek, and as it's spoken of in the Old Testament, particularly with the prophets, that word kingdom doesn't really mean realm as much as it does reign. It's not really referring to a place, rather, it's referring to a power, all right? So now of all the Gospels, Matthew uh, does the most work detailing what is meant by kingdom, and we're going to see that later in our study. But what we need to understand is that from the beginning in Genesis to the end of Revelation, what is meant by kingdom is God's eternal sovereign rule uh, uh, lived out and manifested among men. All right, that, that's what that's what kingdom is talking about. It's talking about God's rule, His will lived out among men. Now, now as we've seen in our Genesis study, unfortunately, tragically, and catastrophically, our first parents Adam and Eve they rejected that rule. They intended to uh, enthrone themselves as king and build their own kingdom. And unfortunately, as their posterity, every single one of us has done the exact same thing. But because of that original fall and that rejection of Yahweh's kingship and his reign, sin and death and destruction and violence and darkness has come into this world. And every single one of us have been bound by it. That's why the world is the way that it is. We've all committed treason against the one true God. However, we see in Genesis Genesis 3.15 that God makes this amazing gospel promise that that he will send a redeemer to make all things new. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, that promise, as we saw in Genesis even, it, it, it begins to grow and grow on itself. Then we come to the time of the prophets, where they, they spoke of the day where God himself would return, establish his kingdom in righteousness, and usher in an unprecedented time of forgiveness, deliverance, restoration, peace, justice, and, 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 and righteousness. Now, this is why this is good news, because in this ministry, John, this is why it's so urgent. John is announcing that that day has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, he has inaugurated this, and he, he's establishing his kingdom not using worldly means or worldly weapons, as Todd mentioned a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week. He's, it's not through violence. It's not through obtaining power. It's not through us against them, but rather it's through sacrificial love. This kingdom does not come all at once. It's like a mustard seed. He is inaugurated and it's growing and growing. However, one day it will be here in full and everything will be made new. Uh, and we also see that this kingdom is not just for one type of person or, or one people group, but rather, as we see in Revelation uh, chapter 5, he, he is redeeming for himself a, a great multitude of folks from every nation, tongue, And tribe. Uh, Friends, this is one of the many reasons that any form of tribalistic or or nationalistic Christianity is far from Jesus. Um, Why it's idolatrous, anti gospel, because it imagines that God is tied to one place and one people. And what we see in the scriptures is is the, the real kingdom is far greater, infinitely greater than that. We're seeing that in Jesus, new creation has broken through. He is pushing back the forces and the kingdom of darkness, and he's bringing forth his kingdom of righteousness. And to enter this kingdom, we see in the rest of Matthew, is to enter into true um, and abundant life. We're told in, in Matthew chapter 13 that to obtain this kingdom, to enter into it, is worth everything that you have. Selling off everything you have is more than worth it to obtain this kingdom. Something new is happening. A new day has dawned. Heaven is broken through in this broken world. But this is what John says. He's announcing that good news. But here, he, this is what he says. He says, here's the deal. We aren't ready to receive it. Uh, we're just not ready. We, we have to make ourselves ready, but we're not ready right now. Uh, We don't earn this thing. We don't achieve it. It, It's a gift. It's a gift that's given to us, but we must make ourselves ready for it. How do we make ourselves ready for it? He says, we repent. Now, this is that second element of John's ministry. And this is really where the greater accent of his ministry falls on this message of repentance. Now, again, so much can be said about repentance. Um, So let's just start off with a basic definition. Essentially, what it means is to turn. To turn around it's a military term it's it's kind of like an about-face you turn from going in one direction and you start heading towards another essentially it means that we turn away from a life of sin or sin and we turn back towards we turn back towards Yahweh so the idea is that there's there's a person, let's just use me for example, Barton, he, is, he was walking in the wrong direction. He is going towards a person, a place, or an ideology, or a thing for, for his identity, for his satisfaction, for his fulfillment, for salvation. And he's headed that way, but then he hears a voice from the Lord himself saying, "Barton, you're going in the wrong direction. There's no hope that way, but, but here I am, turn around and come towards me because I am what you are looking for. And to repent is to hear that voice and to obey it. And what John is saying here is that every single person in every single place needs to do that. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are. Every single person in the world is in need of repentance. Now, the truth is we don't really like to hear that. You know, we like to hear that Jesus is accept uh, accepting of us and he certainly is. But we don't like to hear the idea that we're sinful. Certainly in today's culture, it's it's offensive, right? Uh, it's offensive to admit that we're sinful and that we're doing something wrong and and that we can't just be ourselves, that we I mean this is like Old Testament stuff. It, you know, it's it's negative. This is a John the Baptist type thing. Jesus Jesus didn't do that. Well, we see in the Bible that that's not true. Uh, unfortunately, we don't hear this message and and a lot in contemporary preaching in the world because because it is offensive to our to our you know twenty first century ears, but. So this is a message that Jesus himself preached. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus took on the exact message of John the Baptist. We see in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach this exact same message. And we see that they actually took up this message in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, we see Peter in his famous sermon uh, calling people to repent, to uh, to uh, into repentance. We see the Apostle Paul do the same thing in his ministry in Acts chapter 17 and elsewhere in his his letters. What we see in the New Testament is that repentance is at the heart of the Christian experience. And what's more, we see also that it's not a negative thing. (laughs) It is a gift. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a summary of the doctrine that uh, we see in scripture, tells us that repentance is a gift unto life, a grace unto life, we're, we're our God, the, the creator, majestic ruler of everything whom we've committed treason against, offers us amnesty. He gives us the opportunity to turn away from sin and rebellion, which leads us nowhere except for further ruin. And he, he, he enables us by his Holy Spirit to, to turn away from those things and turn back towards the Lord and to enjoy all of his benefits. This, this is amazing. It's true that Jesus, he, he receives us as we are, wherever we are. But in his grace, brothers, he does not leave us as we are. He doesn't reject us. He doesn't cancel us when, when we sin. But he does invite us to turn around from our sin and back towards him so that we might believe more deeply in his gospel, that we might grow in faith and become more and more like him. Repentance is not a negative thing. It is a gift. It is a grace unto life. And as Christians, it's not just a one and done thing. There's that initial repentance where we come to know the Lord and turn to him. But we're always repenting, right? We're always turning away from sin and turning back towards him. It it is a grace unto life. It's a gift. Now, what does it mean to repent? How do we repent? Fortunately, John tells us how. He tells us three elements in verses 5 through 12. First off, we must confess our sins sincerely, what does that mean? Well, first off, it means that we take ownership over the fact that we are sinners. Um, we are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by fallen nature. We take ownership over that fact, and we take ownership over our individual sins, and we confess them. Now, that is so contrary to what we normally do. I mean, it's typical of us to, to explain away our sin, to, to minimize them, normalize them sweep them under the rug. Oftentimes we call um, call them mistakes rather than what they really are, sins, right? But we don't see that happening there in the desert. That original crowd in verses five and six, what do they do? They took ownership over it. Uh, They they came forward and and, and they confessed before everyone their sins and their need of grace. They weren't image-managing. Uh, they, they weren't uh, uh, trying to explain away their sin. They, they wanted to show no quarter to their sin. So they confessed it audibly before everyone and threw themselves onto the mercy lap of the Lord. So they confessed their sin sincerely. They also showed godly remorse. And we see this you know, elsewhere in scriptures when Christians repent, particularly Psalm 51. Uh, now, it's not a worldly remorse. It's not a worldly sorrow. You know, so oftentimes every well every child shows remorse, right? When they get caught by their parents, right? Uh, that's not a godly remorse. It's, it's it's not a godly sorrow when when we're only sorrowful, right? When we get caught or when our life goes down in the tubes. Everyone is remorseful then. A, a godly remorse, rather, is to have an awareness that who we have ultimately sinned against is the God who created us and loves us more than we could ever possibly know. That's what David shows us in Psalm 51 when he finally repents. He says, against you and you alone, oh God, have I sinned. Now he's not dismissing the effects of his sin on other people, but he's just getting to the root issue that he had sinned against the God who made him, created him, and loved him, and it grieved him. Listen, godly grief, it, it leads to Uh, Renewal. We see that in David's life. We certainly saw it in Peter's life. A worldly sorrow just leads to further destruction. Judas is a perfect example of that. But to confess our sins sincerely, that means that we take ownership over our sins, we confess them, and we show a godly grief that we've simply sinned against the God who loves us. Secondly, the second element, we see this in verses 7 and 10, is that we must change our lives decisively this is what's illustrated in this in this weird encounter between John the Baptist and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John is showing us that, that true repentance is a heart change, but it always manifests itself in a life lived, in a changed life, right? This is what uh, essentially he rebukes those religious leaders for. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, oh, who by the way represented both the left and the right theologically and politically. I found that interesting. But he's rebuking both of them essentially for being frauds. They were there that day just to keep an eye on John to see what all the commotion is, but they had no intention of repenting. And we see that throughout the Gospels. They were putting all of their stock and their lineage that they were ethnically Jew. Um, They were putting all of their stock, at least for the Pharisees, in their purity. The Sadducees were putting their stock in their, um, just their plot in life, their social status. But there was no heart change because it never manifested itself in a changed life, particularly serving and loving the poor. And John says, you have no idea what it is you're doing. Because because gospel repentance means, yes, heart level transformation, but it always manifests itself in a life lived. Those who have understood and received the grace of the Lord show that grace to other people. And that was absent. And he made them aware of it. And he makes us aware of it too. But first off, we confess our sins sincerely. We uh, change our lives decisively. And lastly, and most importantly, true biblical repentance means that we're trusting Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. Friends, listen, we must never put our faith in the fact that we have faith. We do that sometimes. But listen, our faith in this life anyway is imperfect. It's it's incomplete, it's small, it's, it's weak. One day it won't be, one day our faith will be perfect, right? But that day is not today, so don't put your faith in the fact that you have faith, nor really hope in the fact that you're repenting. St. Augustine said that we even as Christians need to repent of our repentance because our repentance is never perfect. Therefore, we must put our hope in the object of our faith, Jesus Christ alone who will never, ever let us go, who will never, ever let us down. And that's what we see happening in verses 11 and 12. The primary ministry of John the Baptist was to point people to a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Friends, we must be trusting in him, because really that's the only way that we'll ever truly repent anyway. Now, I told you earlier that John the Baptist is not the perfect model And one of the reasons is, is because he did not entirely understand what this Jesus, this Messiah, came to do. He didn't have a full understanding of how gracious, brothers, that that this Redeemer is. We see his confusion in Matthew chapter 11. Now, in in, in Matthew uh, chapter three, verses 11 and 12, he tells us that this Messiah is coming and he's gonna bring judgment. And we see this this winnowing fork where he's gonna separate the wheat from the chaff. And brothers, that's exactly what's going to happen. Judgment is coming. And the only way to escape the wrath of God is to repent and to believe on the Lord of Jesus Christ. But what John did not understand is that there would be a second advent. And on that second advent, yes, there would be judgment. There would be judgment um, on everyone. But that day is not today. Uh, Today is a day of grace. Today is a day of amnesty where where he offers deliverance and, and forgiveness and restoration to anyone who would repent no matter how far gone the sinner. Anyone who would repent and believe on him, he offers amnesty and grace and forgiveness and deliverance. And John didn't understand that. He thought judgment was coming today, but today is not the day of judgment. Today is the day, the year of the Lord's favor. John the Baptist did not yet understand what John the evangelist knew in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that should whoever believe in him might not perish but have eternal life he sent his son into the world not to condemn the world right but to save the world through him and this is why uh, jesus in matthew chapter 11 verses 11 through 15 he tells his 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 disciples that listen there's no one born of a woman that is greater than my man john the baptist but those who are even least in my kingdom will be greater than he. Why? Because they understand my grace. And brothers, this leads us to our third point: the the baptism of Jesus. Now, normally, um, verses one through twelve and verses thirteen through seventeen would be separated into different lessons, but but we wanted to put them together so that we truly might get a picture and understand how gracious this one is that, we're to re, that, that we are to turn to in repentance. And as we look at his uh, baptism and the ministry of John the Baptist, as we take note of it, we see glorious, gracious, amazing things about this Jesus that we turn to. Now, a little bit of context. Prior to verse 12, uh, as we've seen, John is calling everyone to repentance, to turn away from their sin, to confess their sin, to turn away from it. And he's calling all of them to, to, to baptize, to baptism, which was um, essentially uh, symbolizing their washing of sin and their passing through the waters of judgment safely by, by trusting Yahweh. It was a picture of Exodus, right? So you can imagine then why John was so confused when the promised one uh, came to him to be baptized, and and we see his confusion he says jesus what are you doing i've been telling everybody to prepare themselves for you for for them to repent and 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 if anyone needs to repent it's me let me be baptized why are you asking me to baptize you you see john knew that that the messiah this jesus was sinless um he didn't need baptism he needed baptism How did did Jesus respond? He goes, you know what, John, you're right. I I am sinless, but baptize me anyway. Why? This is what he says. So that I might fulfill all righteousness. Now, it actually says so that we might fulfill all righteousness. He's referring to he and John. Um, He needed John to baptize him. But essentially what Jesus is saying, so that I might fulfill all righteousness righteousness. Friends, this phrase is so glorious. What in the world does it mean? Well, it means at least three things. First off, it means that Jesus has come. The reason that he was baptized is to show us, um, but also to come to identify with sinful people. This is his act of obedience. Jesus, in his baptism, is taking the place of the new Adam. He is our new representative head. He is going to represent us to the the Father. And this is what Jesus is saying. Yes, John's message is right. You are sinners who are in need of redemption. You must repent. But this is who I am. I am the new Adam who's going to identify myself with you. I'm going to take your sins upon myself so that your repentance has efficacy. That's what he is talking about. (laughs) He he is saying essentially that that he is the new exodus. He's identifying with us. He doesn't reject us. He doesn't cancel us. He, he, He humbles himself and he identifies with us as sinners. Secondly, he is declaring to all of us that he truly is the promised Messiah, He is publicly showing and declaring that he was the promised one who would come to take away the sins of the world and to deliver his people from judgment. Uh, He is the new Exodus. He is saying, and, and the, the Jews would have understood this, and we must understand it as well so we get the fullness of what he is doing. Jesus is saying that, that he is going to uh, deliver us and rescue us from the ultimate bondage, not the bondage of Egypt, but from the bondage of sin and death. And he's going to walk us safely through the greater waters of judgment, not the Red Sea, but the judgment of his father, the wrath to come. And he's going to bring us out safely on the other side to a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, come to me. I'm the new Exodus. Trust me and follow me is what Jesus is saying. He's also demonstrating that he is our willing redeemer. Don't dismiss this, friends. He did not have to do this, but he willingly humbled himself. He willingly took on our flesh. He willingly was born a, a, among the least of these, a, a peasant woman. He willingly took on our sin. He, he, he willingly was baptized here. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly died for us. He wasn't forced. This is who our Savior is. This is who our Redeemer is. And because of this, we see that he receives his Father's approval in verses 16 through 17. Now, we see that the the Spirit descends upon him and anoints him. And and what that's doing is for our benefit. That's publicly demonstrating what was already true. The Spirit was upon him, and, and, and we see it. But then the heavens part, and we hear the audible voice of God the Father who says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. How beautiful. Now, that that right there is is a quote um, from two separate verses in the Old Testament. Psalm 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, verse 1. Psalm 2 is talking about the majesty of Jesus as the only begotten one of the Father. That, that everything in heaven and earth has been given to him as possession. He is, he is king over all things. He, he is the victorious king. And everyone owes him allegiance lest they perish. But then Isaiah 42, we see that this king is the one who suffers for his people in order to save his people. So, so right here and, and Jesus' baptism, all of this is being foreshadowed. And, and God the Father gives his his his, his uh, approval of this, d- declaring for us this is this is the plan and has been since the beginning, that, that Jesus achieves victory for his people. And this victory, which was born out of his humility, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It is salvation for all who would repent and believe. It is achieved and secured through what Christ does here at the cross. <laughs> I mean, this, this is this is the Father's will. And, and this is Jesus's desire. And this is the Spirit's work, applying the finished work of Jesus to those who repent and believe on the Lord. This, friends, is the good news of the gospel. Now listen, in this passage, John is declaring that a new day has dawned, the kingdom has arrived in Jesus, and one day it will be here in full. We also learn too, as John does uh, later, that God in his grace is not bringing judgment right now, but this is a day of grace that he's offering amnesty and release and deliverance from all of those who would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do, we enter into his kingdom. We enter into joyful, eternal, and the abundance of life that we will experience right now but most certainly will experience in full on the day to come. Now here's a couple of takeaways before we begin our day. Number one, we have to understand that Jesus is infinitely more gracious than we usually give him credit for. He's infinitely more gracious and friends, I don't think we will ever repent of our sin. We'll, certainly others will never repent of their sin if we don't understand that. If we, it, 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 fear never leads to, to biblical repentance, but seeing and understanding the love and the grace of Jesus Christ does. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still dirty, while we were still rebellious, while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He loves us more than we could ever possibly imagine. Jesus is more gracious than we ever give him credit for. Friends, we have, the gospel tells us that you and I are are more sinful than we ever care to admit, but that in Jesus Christ too, we are more loved than we ever dared to hope. See how amazing and how gracious Jesus is. Secondly, we must understand that when we do repent and come to know the Lord, we are given a new identity and are delighted in by the Father. I think as Christians, we struggle with this as a, with the most. We always deal with guilt and and shame. Even as Christians, we know that we're forgiven, but we we feel like he forgives us reluctantly. Maybe the Father doesn't really care for us that much, but we have to dissuade ourselves from thinking that. Because, brothers, when you come to faith in, in, in Jesus, he's in you and you are in him. You are united to him by faith. And therefore, what we understand then is when we see God the Father right here in this passage delighting in Jesus because of who Jesus is in us and because we are in him, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Father delights in us as well. You are delighted in by your Father. Thirdly, for those of us who have come to know our gracious Lord Jesus Christ and understand that we are delighted in by God the Father, we have our marching orders. We have our mission. We are called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his coming, the good news of his kingdom. We are to embody it, and we are to live it out, making earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray. It really simplifies things for us. This is our purpose. These are our marching orders. And we don't do it using, you know, worldly weapons. We don't do it through an us against them mentality. We don't do it from trying to grasp and maintain power and all the rest. But we do it through sacrificial love. We do it through humbling ourselves and offering ourselves. Uh, to others as Jesus did. We do it through sacrificial love as, as Jesus did. And we do it by pointing others unashamedly and boldly to Jesus as John did. That's it. Friends, what we learn from Matthew 3 is that a new day has dawned. God is on the move, He is in the business of making all things new. And he has graciously and hilariously (laughs) called broken vessels like ourselves to take part. What an amazing day. Let's get busy.